Hi there, I'm David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist here at JP Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. In this, our first season, we're focusing on future trends, the themes, ideas, and issues that will shape our future and the investment environment, not just tomorrow, but for decades to come. And so I'm very happy to be joined today by Samantha Azzarello, Global Market Strategist on our Market Insights team, to discuss behavioral finance. Welcome, Sam. Hi, David. Thanks for having me on. So first question, what's the difference between regular finance and behavioral finance? So it's so interesting, right? We think of regular finance, and that's what makes the world go round. But I would just say, Behavioral finance assumes that investors are completely rational. It assumes that markets are very efficient. Just it assumes no frictions effectively. And then when you think about behavioral finance, it's much more interdisciplinary. So it links psychology, um, social studies, emotional factors into assumptions and into behavior. And it turns out that these factors actually impact markets quite a bit. So what's a key tenet of behavioral finance that every investor should be aware of? So I think when we think through behavioral finance and we go a layer below, it actually breaks out into two pillars. And these two pillars have a lot of overlap. But one pillar is judgment. Effectively, how do investors estimate the chance of something happening, the likelihood of something happening? And it turns out there's a lot of a behavioral overlay. We could say that we're always just influenced by the data, but that's actually not the case. So after judgments, we then make choices. And I would say, Choices is obviously the process that humans use to select amongst actions. And you think about an investor doing asset allocation or thinking through, you know, how credible an investment choice is. It makes sense that behavioral finance is woven throughout all of these. To answer your question very directly, I would say one piece of behavioral finance that everyone should be aware of now is loss aversion. Okay, loss aversion. And I'm saying this, and I know markets are up quite a bit, um, but it turns out that losses hurt twice as much as equivalent gains. So simply put, losing $1,000 is going to hurt twice as much as the ple- versus the pleasure that you would get. For example, when we think about loss aversion, losses hurt twice as much as gains of the same magnitude. So thinking through a very uh, simple example, losing $1,000 is going to hurt two times as much versus the gain you could get from winning $1,000. So that's how we're programmed. And I think this shows up in a lot of different investment decisions. Overall, we see it in terms of holding cash and being under allocated to equities. So this is loss aversion, you know, operating on portfolios. And we just know that there's so much cash sitting on the sidelines. And one of the main reasons for that is loss aversion. Also, I would say loss aversion can show up in terms of holding on to losing positions. So yes, we want to be invested for the long run. Yes, we have to be smart in terms of how we move money in investments. We can't leave an investment too uh, too quickly. Um, we have to give things a chance to really prove their worth. But we've still found that people hold on to losing positions because they don't want to realize that loss. Right? Once you sell and realize that loss, you're engaging in loss aversion and you have to realize the loss, which can be very hard psychologically. So I think it's really important from that perspective to have sell discipline around how we move things in and out of the portfolio. That could look like stop loss and it, or it could look like having very robust, um, frequent conversations with your investment committee around how long to hold something and how to know when a losing position is just that. It's a losing position and it's time to look for something else for the portfolio. 
So how, how does behavioral finance apply to what we've seen really since March of this year to right now? The most relevant behavioral bias from March to now would absolutely be recency bias. Recency bias is so simple. It's around that idea of the judgment pillar we spoke to. And that's just the idea that we expect more of the same. We just expect more of the same. So you think back to March, right? What happened when markets fell? Recency bias would have suggested investors would have expected the market to stay depressed or frankly, move even further down, you know, more losses. So it was interesting that so many investors were taken by surprise when the market actually did the opposite of what recency bias would have suggested and started to move on the upswing, right? And started to perform significantly better and move higher with every week. And now we come to where we are now in the in the market cycle. I think recency bias is acting again. And how it's acting again is investors are just expecting markets to continue to move higher or growth to continue to outperform value or the U.S. equity market to continue to outperform international. So recency bias is an unbelievably strong behavior and attitude that impacts investors within all facets of the portfolio. So I would say right now, more than ever, we have to check that recency bias and really take a hard look at where we think things are going, not given where they've come from, but just where do the fundamentals, where does the outlook suggest, irregardless of you know what might have happened in March or in the summer. It's interesting. It seems like we're, we're all sort of subject to all these biases, but is it some sort of behavioral bias that, that sort of is kind of under the radar here, which is actually more important than ever right now? The most important behavioral bias that everyone needs to be aware of right here, right now, is around confirmation bias. So quickly, let me just define confirmation bias. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's this idea that we seek out information that confirms our opinions, that confirms our beliefs. And this is going to be true of markets. This is going to be true of politics. This is just going to be true of anything where you have a strongly held opinion or view. And what I think is really interesting is that when we talk to clients, there's a range of different opinions, but they tend to be held tightly. So what does this actually mean then if we think about portfolios? Well, if you have a strong view that growth is going to continue to outperform, you will forever and always continually find, seek out, and look for opinions, data, and analysis that suggests that suggest that opinion, right? That growth is going to continue to outperform value. Or the same argument can be made with international versus US. So I think what can we do around this is Know that you have to understand both sides, but more so than just knowing it and acknowledging it is seek out opposing views, right? Seek out analysis, opinions, data that can poke holes in what you believe or what your investment committee believes. So how this is actually going to work is we have to seek out data, opinion, and analysis to poke holes in the views that we have. And I think around investment committee meetings or even just how we get discussions, how we think through markets, it's really important to always think through what's the risk to the view, what's the base case, what's the bull case, and then make sure that we really have a robust decision-making process around how we're putting money to work, knowing that confirmation bias is something that every single person actually deals with when they're thinking about what investments are going to do well over the next 12 to 18 months. It does seem to be really important. I mean, I can think, you know, obviously, in politics, you've got this confirmation bias. Uh, you also, you know, that's one of the reasons why the leader of an organization doesn't need a whole pile of nodders and yes-men uh, to, to really confirm their thoughts. But it's uh, clearly, you know, over, over my career, I found this incredibly important in investing just to try to challenge whatever opinion you have to see it from another angle. Um, so 
going forward, we do expect the returns are going to be coming down. If we have an environment in which returns are coming down, uh, does behavioral finance matter more? I mean, these, is it more important to think about behavioral finance principles? I would say absolutely. And I'm biased. I can admit that because I think this topic's important. But just, just think about it if we zoom out, right? Returns, that's the bread and butter of our portfolios. And if we think that all of that's coming down, whether it's U.S. equities or U.S. fixed income returns, it means we have to get all the other little things right. So, you know, that's a layer below is going to be asset allocation then. We have to make sure we have asset allocation right. Then we have to get principles right. So I'm thinking of not timing the market, staying invested, making sure we're putting cash to work, not letting emotions influence our investment decisions. And then from emotions, I really think that's when you move in towards behavioral finance. So this is for all the asset allocators, the investors, right? All of the investment analysts that are listening to this, just being aware of your own bias. And another bias that we're going to leave everyone with is framing, which I actually think is really interesting. Framing has to do with the idea that your vantage point matters. So I just want to give everyone an example, thinking about U.S. equities. So you go back from 2000 to 2012. Okay, that's the, the vantage I want everyone to take. Markets were essentially flat. So average annual returns during that 12-year period where if you were investing and living through it, it felt like so much happened. We had the tech bubble, 9-11, 2008, yet the market was essentially flat. Average annual returns during that time period were 0.6%, less than 1%. Okay, so that's one period. That's one frame. Now you fast forward. We go post great financial crisis, and we look at the market from March 2009 to March 2020. Okay, and that average annual return was an astonishing 18.3%. So clearly night and day. And I'm bringing these up because these examples show that framing actually matters. If I was an equity investor from just 2009 to 2020, right, I have a very skewed, dare I say, overinflated view of what the US equity market should be returning to me as an investor. Whereas those who maybe have been investing for a longer period of time, a longer frame, a much broader vantage, they have a more realistic view on what equities return over the long run. And I say this because I think going forward, I know our long-term capital market assumptions and many of the smartest people at JP Morgan Asset Management are thinking through what US equity returns look like. And we've kind of... Um, muddled out to about five and a half percent average annual returns for U.S. stocks. So again, you know, changing the frame. And I just think what this means then is, again, we always have to zoom out, always have to check our biases, our vantages, and the frames that we're using when we think about returns going forward. And this is important. So Sam, I've heard this phrase portfolio puzzles. What exactly are portfolio puzzles? So economics and finance are obsessed with puzzles. So puzzles is often in the title of many different theories and you know ideas that economists have. But this is actually really interesting, this idea of portfolio puzzles. And there's about five. So I'm just going to go through them. And I know for many of you listening, you're going to think, huh, I've definitely something I've seen before with my clients. And it's natural. These are all linked to some of the biases we already spoke to. But the first two around equities are going to be non-participation in equity markets. 
or low portfolio allocation to equities, right? And this ties into the equity risk premium. This ties into loss aversion, but this is just the idea that no one likes losing money. And I know that's a very simple, obvious thing to say, but think about that. We overweight the risks. We overweight the idea that we could lose money, even though we've seen over time, time and time again, that equities are the main way that we transform our hard-earned income into wealth, right? Equities is the powerhouse in portfolios. And I would just say, we all know we're going to need more equities farther into retirement than we ever thought when we think about a return, the return outlook, and the idea that we need growth assets. Now, the third portfolio puzzle is home country bias. This is a big one. David, I know you've been speaking to international equities and how we need that in the portfolio. And I can tell you, we look at all the data and just home country bias is real. It's a problem. Uh, U.S. investors are very much tethered to U.S. equities. Even within fixed income, that's even more of an issue. We find that the average U.S. investor, fixed income, over 90% of their fixed income allocation is U.S., right? That's home bias in action. And you think that there's such a big, wide world out there when it comes to investments, and yet we're all really tethered to the U.S. And then the last two portfolio puzzles, uh, the first is going to be overweighting own company stock. This is really interesting. You know, we've talked about this, and I know this is something that people are aware of, yet they can't help it. They hold a lot of their company stock or they have very concentrated positions. And it just turns out that doesn't do well over the long run. And there's a risk associated with that. And it's unnecessary risk in our view. And then the last portfolio puzzle is portfolio under diversification. And I just want to scream this one from the rooftops, right? Diversification and a diversified portfolio, it needs a little bit of PR right now, right? When you think about how US growth stocks have outperformed and outperformed and outperformed, it's meant that People have felt that diversification isn't necessary, but what we would say, right, and we have many pages in the Guide to the Markets that shows this, while diversification doesn't necessarily work in any one given year, it works over the long run, right? It works over the long haul. It does exactly what it's supposed to. And for all of us, we're long-run investors. We're not investing for the one year. So I think there's more of a willingness to get and stay diversified now, just because there might be some cracks in the market. But I would say that being diversified diversified, we still see that clients are under-diversified in their portfolios. So it seems like investors are prey to a whole pile of behavioral problems which cause them to achieve less than optimal returns in the long run. But is there any survey work which shows which problems investors actually think they suffer from? So great question. There is. We pulled some surveys and saw what investors were thinking, feeling, how they were behaving. And an astounding 73% of advisors surveyed said that they were most influenced by the bias of confirmation bias, right? So confirmation bias, that's one that we already mentioned is the most important, somewhat under the radar bias. But Everyone's aware of it, right? That when you believe one thing, you seek out and find analysis that shows you what you think and you tend to avoid or delete or frankly discount 
anything that suggests different to what you think. So confirmation bias was the top bias that advisors said they were um, subject to. And then closely behind that, interestingly enough, was herding. So herding behavior, being influenced by peers to follow trends. And this might not just be peers in terms of people you're speaking to in the office or people you work with, because robust discussion in that venue makes sense, but just thinking about the news, right? The news media and what we're seeing there in the financial press. And that's been a cause of hurting behavior and actually hurting, as we very well know, has the ability to move markets, create bubbles and pop bubbles. Okay. Well, well thank you, Sam. I think that those are all uh, fascinating issues. And I, you know, I, I think about, you know, I have to always remind myself of these issues when, when we try to present ideas in our guide to the markets, uh, you know, particularly thinking about that framing issue. You know, that's one of the reasons we use either 25 years or 50 years we deliberately try not to cherry pick the the period of time that we're looking at here, um, but overall, you know, the, these are these are fascinating uh, issues, and I, I completely agree with you. It's so important right now when markets are high for people to think carefully about the kinds of behavioral finance biases that that may be causing them uh, or may cause them problems going forward. So I'd like to thank you very much uh, for joining me today on Insights Now. Thank you for listening, and please tune into our next episode when I'll be joined by John Bilton, Head of Global Multi-Asset Strategy here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. John and I will discuss the implications of a dominant role for fiscal policy in stimulating global economic growth in the decade ahead. Please stay on for the following important disclosures. The Market Insights Program provides comprehensive data and commentary on global markets without reference to products. Designed as a tool to help clients understand the markets and support investment decision-making, the program explores the implications of current economic data and changing market conditions. For the purposes of MIFID 2 the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID 2 MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be taken as advice or a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan feature, or any other purpose in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any examples used are generic, hypothetical, and for illustration purposes only. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own financial professional, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be appropriate to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. It should be noted that investment involves risk. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. 
JP Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of JP Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored, and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at am.jpmorgan.com global privacy. This podcast is issued by the following entities. In the United States, by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Incorporated, both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. In Latin America, for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities as the case may be. In Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories, except the Yukon, and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland, and Labrador. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe. In Asia-Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Asia-Pacific Limited or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, company registration number 1976015861586K. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trust Association Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number Kanto Local Finance Bureau Financial Instruments Firm number 330. In Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth. By J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 5514-383-2080, AFSL 376-919. For all other markets in APAC, to intended recipients only. For U.S. only, if you are a person with a disability and need additional support in viewing the material, please call us at 1-800-343-1113 for assistance. Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.